Well, I want to go ahead and invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And we're working our way through this amazing chapter and are about to complete a trilogy that has us focused on the Lord Jesus Christ's authority and power. It started back at the end of Mark chapter 4 as Jesus uh, demonstrated his sovereignty through a storm that allowed him to exercise his authority and power over nature as he calmed the wind and water and waves of a storm. Next, our Lord's power to save allowed him to exercise his authority over Satan and demons and the depravity of man and even a demon-possessed man. No level of spiritual darkness, even when it combines forces, has the power to contend with the Almighty. Amen? Amen. And we learn that and we trust that. And now the third and final part of the trilogy allows Jesus to exercise his authority and power over illness and death. And through it all, we see the sufficiency of Christ's power through circumstances. Every realm has met its match, whether it's the realm of nature, the spiritual realm of darkness, or the physical realm of illness or death. And we live in a world where all three of these realms impact circumstances in our lives. Nature itself can be disruptive. I know our RE was going back for, uh, for a service uh, for a loved one who passed away in his family. We can lift him up in prayer, but the, the East Coast storm hit, right? A lot of people just shut down. In fact, our, our previous church, Hickory Harvest, they're not even able to meet together because they got hit with that so, snowstorm. And there's, there's, there's no snow plows in the city to remove the six inches of snow that they got. So they have to sit tight. Natural disasters are a part of our broken world as well. Sin and spiritual darkness exist in our fallen world. Physical sickness, disease, and death are prevalent on our planet. And if I can boil it all down and summarize what all of these things are, they can be called the same thing. They're the circumstances of life. These are the effects of living in a world that is cursed and it's one that we have to contend with and the one thing that we all have in common is that no human being on earth is able to exercise control over these realms and specifically the circumstances of life that come out of these realms and this is by divine design and it's supported by divine revelation according to god's word that difficult times will come for many reasons in second timothy 3 1 that trials and afflictions will occur, according to James 1, 2, and 3. That the realm of spiritual darkness is controlled by an evil enemy, 1 John 5, 19. That the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And that physical death is reality for everyone, Hebrews 9, 27. That it's appointed once for man to die. And this is why the gospel accounts and other scriptures point us to the one who controls all things. The one who has absolute authority and power to control that which we can never control. That our hope needs to be completely in Christ as we trust him by faith and his will for our lives. And I know that I'm not sharing anything new with you. It's, this isn't something that you don't already know, but I do have a question for you. If we believe this, if we affirm this, then why is it that our circumstances still get the best of us at times? Times when we doubt, when we're overwhelmed by certain things, hopelessness, discouragement, feelings of despair, they move in and they hijack our faith. And they blind us of the truths that we so adamantly affirm. Do you know the primary answer to this predicament? There, there, there are many answers that can be offered, but there's a primary answer. It's because our faith as believers, as believers continues to grow. Our faith as believers, this may be a newsflash to some, it continues to grow. And just because our faith is clearly defined, it doesn't mean that our faith is fully grown. You want to capture that statement. You want to take that with you. Just because our faith is clearly defined, it does not mean that our faith 
is fully grown. There are areas of weakness that still exist where the Lord even tests our faith and encourages our spiritual growth to trust in him more deeply. And if faith doesn't grow, then our Lord's questions to the disciples wouldn't even make sense. As he asked them, and even in our last chapter, how is it that you still lack faith? Or that when he refers to them as men of little faith in Matthew uh, chapter 16, verse 8, even the Apostle Paul, when writing the strong and robust church in Thessalonica, told them that he and the other believers, quote, keep praying night and day most earnestly that we may see their face and may complete what is lacking in their faith, according to 1 Thessalonians 3.10. Faith grows. And our faith in Christ, even though clearly defined, is still a growing faith as we learn to trust and grow in the Lord. And so this leads to another question, obviously. How do we grow in our faith as believers? And the answer to this question is relatively simple, and it's threefold. First, we study the object of our faith and increase in our understanding of who God is. If you have a small God, you will have a small faith. If you have a big God, you will have big faith. And it's true as we see the circumstances of life and the problems that we face. When your God is small, your problems are big, aren't they? And when your God is big, what does it do? How does it help us to put our problems in perspective? Second, we study his power and sovereignty which helps us to see that he is completely trustworthy. If God is in control, if he is in absolute control, and he is, then there shouldn't be anything that we can't trust him to guide us through. Amen? Amen. Perhaps you've read Jerry Bridges' book, and the premise of the entire book has people focus on these very two things to focus on the magnitude of who God is, to focus on the power and the magnitude of his sovereignty. But there's a third thing. We need to make it our habit to apply these realities to any situation or circumstance that we might ever face. It's not enough to have a knowledge of God. It's not enough to have a robust theology of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have a knowledge of sovereignty and power if we do not willingly choose to apply these truths to the circumstances of our life. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's, that's where faith is implemented. That's where faith is practiced, we can say. That is what it looks like day to day. And when we don't trust God, perhaps our view of God is either small or incorrect. Our, perhaps our view of his power or sovereignty is small or incorrect. Perhaps our application of these truths is either missing or inaccurately applied. And so why am I sharing all of this? Our passage today is one that should help us grow our faith and trust in the Lord. It allows us to study who God is as we look at the magnitude and the power and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also allows us to zero in on his sovereignty in the situations of life, his awareness, to see that he is personally connected with what is going on in our lives as we witness his power and sovereignty, even in sickness and in death. The title of our message is The Healing and Resurrecting Power of Christ. And Mark 5, 21 through 43, shares two miracles pointing to the healing and resurrecting power of Christ through the gospel so that your faith is grown to trust in him more deeply. And this is a massive text. I, I was a little intimidated when I saw that it was one unit in the Greek. It's, it's meant to be taught together. It's, it's, it's massive. And let's start by reading all 23 verses together, starting in verse 21. And one request from someone on admin, just real quick. I see, it seems a little warm in here already. If 
um, we want to just dial it down just a little bit. I don't want to dehydrate and pass out on y'all. No. Um, this is what it says, starting in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. The woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue, of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions. And he entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded, and he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and said that something should be given to her to eat. As I've shared before, the gospel accounts are very purposed in pointing us to the deity of Christ. But as I've also shared recently, that's not their only purpose, and it bears repeating their scope goes beyond just being evangelistic. If their only purpose was evangelism, it could easily be argued then, once you're saved, that there's no need to study the Gospels any further. They have lessons to teach us about the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have lessons to teach us about his sovereignty and power. And they can grow our faith in great measure as we apply principles from these lessons to our walks with the Lord. And at the root of our faith is trusting God. In the Greek, it's the word pistis, which actually means to trust. That's what it is at the heart of faith, trusting God. And you'll notice that each of our two points in our outline start with this word trust, and they help us understand why we should trust the Lord. And the first point is this, trust completely in Christ because of his healing power. Now, on the surface, that seems like a relatively simple point and a simple truth, and that's because it is. And as we look to Christ and we study the depth of his interaction with these people, we have much to learn from. And we'll also have much to learn from the man and woman who find themselves coming to the Lord in the most desperate of circumstances. Let's begin with the desperate plea of a man named Jairus that begins in verses 21 and 22. 
Jesus has just left the region of the Gerasenes, right? And I know because we're, we're going through this uh, in an expositional fashion, it seems like uh, maybe weeks or months have passed by, but in real time, we're talking just about a couple of days. He made the journey across, right? There was the uh, point in which he, he, he taught on the kingdom parables, um, spent a day teaching. He travels across, they encounter a storm, they get to the region of the Gerasenes. They're greeted warmly by a demon-possessed man who, who uh, got out, and little did he know he was going to encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the, we know the story. We don't have time to, to cover it all or to, to reiterate it all. But the Gerasenes basically asked Jesus to do what? Go. Go. After 2,000 swine, you know, did, did a, a pig dive off a cliff, great financial loss. They, they, they wanted Jesus to leave. They saw him as a threat. And Jesus acknowledges. Jesus acknowledges uh, their request, and he gets back in the boat with only the garrison demoniac who, who desired to go with him. And there's no, there, apparently there's no recorded incident of storm on the return, okay? That was the, 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 the disciples had learned their lesson. We had an opportunity to learn it as well. Right? We saw the Lord's power through the storm. And so when they get back, the crowd, the massive crowd that has assembled still appears to be unmoved. They're right there. So what do they do? They begin to regather around him. And Jesus is quickly approached by a synagogue official by the name of Jairus. And a synagogue official was someone who would have been in charge of um, organizing and overseeing the structure of the worship that would take place at the synagogue. The, the reading of the scriptures, the preaching, the public prayer weren't performed by a professional class of people, but there were officials designated to each synagogue who would oversee this process. The ruler of the synagogue wasn't a professional trained scribe or rabbi, but a lay member of the synagogue who was entrusted by the elders of the community with general oversight of the synagogue. He was a guy who would have handled the maintenance in the building and the security of the building as well. He would procure the scrolls of scripture for reading. He would arrange the Sabbath worship by designating scripture readers and teachers and appointing people to lead in prayer. The point being that this would have been someone who was well-respected and committed to serving God, especially in the atmosphere of the synagogue. And as we've already learned in Mark's account, Jesus began his ministry in Galilee by doing what? Traveling from synagogue to synagogue. So there's a chance that Jesus may have already even met this man. There's, there's a chance that Jesus, um, when he was traveling from synagogue to synagogue, if he, he may have even healed somebody. We don't know. What we do know is that according to the end of verse 22 and verses 23 and 24, that Jairus comes up and seeing him falls at his feet. And if your Bible translation has that asterisk right there, again, that means it's, it's translated in the present tense, but your, your translation will put it in the past tense so that there's flow. We see a number of those in, in the NASB. It says that Jairus comes up and seeing him falls at his feet and implores him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And we're told later in verse 22 that his daughter is 12 years old. Those of us who are parents in the room know if there's one thing that captures our hearts, it is certainly the love that we have for our children. And for those of you and many, and it seems like we have many at Cornerstone these days who are, are having the experience of becoming first-time parents, you're, you're learning very quickly that you had no idea how much you could love a little person. Aren't you? It is, it is captivating. It is beautiful. Our children are precious to us. And if there's one dreadful thought to us, it is the thought of something life-threatening happening to our children. There is no reality more sobering 
more heart-wrenching for a parent than the thought of having to bury one of your children. Yet this appears to be the reality that Jairus is facing. And in the Greek, the phrase translated to the point of death, it's a colloquialism. And that literally means at death's door or sinking fast. Imagine being at the beach and and swimming in the water and as a parent you look out and you see one of your children drowning in the water or you're at the local swimming pool and they're in the deep end and somehow they drifted out and they're, they're, they're drowning in the water. How quickly you be in that pool, right? Can literally, it can literally be translated at the last gasp, the last gasp before going down. Interestingly, in Matthew's account, the record says she's even now dead in Matthew 9.18, and that's because it leaves out the further communication that's about to come from the synagogue official's house. Perhaps you've seen a movie where a doctor is talking to a family at a hospital after sharing that their loved one is dying and there's nothing more that can be done. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but there's nothing more that can be done. Some of our physicians in the room have had to deliver such news. And the response is one of shock. And they respond, what? Please. What do they do? You have to do something. You cannot let them die. You have to do something. And this is the heart of Jairus. Coming up to the Lord Jesus Christ. In a last act of desperation. And he appears to be a man of faith. Literally begging Jesus for his daughter's life. The situation demands urgency. And our Lord is immediately moved with compassion and mercy to help this man. And verse 24 says, And Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Even Jesus made the determination that this was urgent. A great sympathetic high priest who empathizes with the situations that demand his urgency and his response. He's there for us. He's right there for us. Now, in all three synoptic gospel accounts, this story includes Jesus and Jairus on their way to go see Jairus' daughter when they're interrupted by the desperate reach of a woman. And Mark is doing something very interesting here and something that he does nine times throughout his gospel account. He's employing what is called the sandwich technique. And and what this does, it allows something important to be drawn out for further understanding. It's it's allowing something to be featured and emphasized. And we can picture this just like in in, um, a traditional way, um, a a sandwich, typically traditional sandwich, two pieces of bread, right? And then there's meat or something of substance in the middle. And here we have the flanking sides of verses 21 through 24, And verses 35 through 43 that are like the bread, but the substance of the passage and the theological key to understanding it is verses 25 through 34, for those of you who want to understand the sequence. And that's my subtle cue to you to listen up, because we're about to focus in on this part of the passage. We need to be dialed in. Look at verses 25 and 26. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had had was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And this woman, she remains nameless throughout the entire account, was suffering terribly. In the Greek, Mark later describes her condition as something similar to a scourging or a gross level of being tormented, combining elements of public shame and physical torment related to the severity of her condition. Commentator James Edwards shares this insight. According to the Torah, a woman was unclean for seven days after her monthly period. 
But if she had a protracted gynecological problem, as does this woman, she remained unclean throughout its duration. Anyone who came into contact with her during menstruation would be banished until evening, according to Leviticus 15, 19 through 27. Josephus' testimony that the temple was closed to women during their menstruation indicates that this particular Torah ruling was carefully observed in Jesus' day. Accordingly, a menstruating woman and whoever touched her were banished from the community until purification. End quote. This woman would have been considered an outcast. Her public shame would have been great. And many probably thought that God was punishing her for something that she had done. That was a common notion during the day. And we, we can look back at the example of Job, right? When his friends falsely thought the same thing. And to make matters worse, she's now suffering in extreme poverty and may have been reduced to begging. Verse 26 again, she had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. She didn't have access to the good doctors of this church, nor did she have access to the luxury of modern medicine and all the amenities that come with it. And this was a humiliating condition. And all attempts to treat it had failed. And John MacArthur in his message, he makes a reference to Luke, who was a physician, even talking about this, um, you know, that if there, if there was something that could have been done, that it probably would have been mentioned by Luke. But there was nothing. It was an incurable condition. Where else could she possibly turn for help? She was completely prohibited from standing on the grounds of the synagogue, coming there for help. Synagogue officials would have forbidden her to even step foot on the property during their, her great time of need. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. What's the name of that man that's with Jesus right now? What, what's his name? What did we say it was? It starts with J? Jairus, Yeah. And, and what's, what does he do? What, what is he in charge of? Oh, he's a synagogue official. Hmm. Interesting. The Lord ordains for Jairus to witness this encounter and help him to see the desperate condition of this woman who would have been turned away at any synagogue that she would have approached for help. And in a similar vein, they're both reaching out in faith and in desperation due to their circumstances. And what's the common denominator in it all? What's the common denominator in it all? It's Jesus who they've reached out to in faith. And verses 27 and 28 describe the woman's desperate reach this way. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind, right? She had to sneak up. If they would have saw her coming, it would have been like the plague. They would have gone right around her. She sneaks up from behind and she touches his cloak. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Her entire life came down to one desperate act of faith. The synagogue had no place for her. The physicians, as much as they tried, they could do nothing for her condition. She was bankrupt. She was alone. And her situation was getting even worse. Yet, you know what she had? Do you know what she had? In a picture is worth a thousand words at this point. I'll tell you what she had. Faith. Faith. How big? We don't know. Some have speculated that there was even a little bit of maybe even superstition involved. 
But there was a realness there. And she thought in her mind, if somehow, if some way, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just touch his cloak, I will be healed. She had a glimmer of hope if she turned to Christ. And what a picture this is of the power of the gospel today. Amen? Right? No matter how desperate your situation might be, bankruptcy, you, you may be considered an outcast by society. You may be completely hopeless and desperate. You may have no other place to turn to. It points us to the healing that can only be found in him, in Christ. And it's been widely said that sometimes God brings us to our lowest points so that the only thing we can do is look up at him. And in many ways, her circumstances, I believe, are a measure of grace. Are they not? Her circumstances are a measure of grace that actually brought her eventually to the feet of Jesus that she could respond in saving faith, which we'll have a moment to, to talk about at a later point, that she would see her greatest need, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, on the flip side, it also needs to be noted that just because your world hasn't been completely turned upside down by severe circumstances, that you don't still need to go to Christ to have him turn your world right side up. We understand that sin nature and the, 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 the wicked depravity of man means what? That everybody's world is upside down. You, you cannot see clearly. We're all darkened in our understanding. We are, we're, we're all banished right from the presence of a perfectly holy God. And none of us on our own measure of goodness or sacrament keeping or any other thing that we might, works-related thing that might be offered us to the, in the religions of the world can earn our salvation and earn enough to stand in the presence of a holy God. That you must turn to Christ and Christ alone by faith. You must reach out and grab him by faith. He must be yours. And our passage is helping you and I see this and that we all have the same need. You have a synagogue official who has access to the religious elite, who is an exalted member of society, who has every conceivable advantage of leverage with inside connections. And what a contrast as we look to this woman who has been deemed an outcast from the, the synagogue, who is ceremonially and perpetually unclean, who is treated like the plague of society, totally alone, on the outside, looking in with nothing. And the mountain of disadvantage is a mile high, yet their need is one and the same. The synagogue official must learn this lesson, and so must we all. There is no partiality with God. There is no world that is right side up without Christ. It doesn't exist. And this is an unfolding uh, lesson being drawn out in the gospel of Mark as Jesus exposes just how spiritually unhealthy the scribes and Pharisees were. And it goes all the way back to an encounter that he has back in Mark 2.17. Well, you, you remember this, an appropriate verse for us to consider, considering the context, when Jesus says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The gospel isn't for those who think that they're spiritually healthy. Nor is it for those who are religious in a self-righteous sense. Because it demands that everyone see their need for Jesus and his righteousness through faith. And this is why Jesus is putting his life-rescuing, life-transforming power, or, or should I say his healing power on display, illustrating the healing reality of the gospel. Verse 29 says, Immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, 
And she felt in her body that she was healed of her afflictions. I, I love what James Edwards writes about the progression in this account. Listen to this. Mark makes no judgment on her orthodoxy or religious background or lack thereof. Rather, he relates that she does the one and only important thing for a disciple to do. She heard, she came, she touched, according to verse 27. To act on what one hears about Jesus is always in Mark the sign of a disciple. And this the woman does. In striking contrast to her deplorable straits in verse 26, Mark narrates the result of her action concretely and graphically in verse 29, which can literally be translated. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she knew in her body that she had been healed from her curse. And bringing her infirmity to Jesus, she is healed. Twelve years. Twelve years of shame and frustration are resolved in a momentary touch of Jesus. End quote. Powerful. And likewise, this points you and I to, to trust completely in Christ's healing power through the gospel. In a moment, his power can heal anyone's affliction. In a moment, immediately. I love it. You know, that's a, it's a word that Mark just loves and he's using a lot, right? Immediately. Just like that. We can be cleansed. And those of us in Christ, we know that there's a, a, an ongoing cleansing that takes place. That it, it, when we come to Christ and we're reconciled through him, to him, through the gospel, that there's an unending fountain of grace that just perpetually flows out of his grace to us to be cleansed time and time again. And we can come to him daily, weekly, in faith. And then we have a full restoration, a full pardon through divine reconciliation. And it never ceases. It never ceases to give us the healing that we need. And God graciously allows believers to cross the bridge of confession when we sin again and again. And I've shared this in the past, that there, the scriptures, three in particular, that build a bridge of confession that is very powerful, that our lives as believers rest upon. That when we sin, that we come to God to confess our sin, right? Our, our sin is first and foremost to him. And 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sin to God, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then there's a second verse, because we sin against one another. James 5.16, that, that, we, that we, we go and confess our, our transgressions that we've committed against other people. The verse says specifically that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And, and it says, so that you may be healed. And this, those, the power of those two verses and the reality and the application of those two verses allow us to walk and function in the spirit of Romans 8.1. A favorite verse of many. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what a reminder this is. And what a tremendous privilege and blessing it is to be in a care group in our church where you have other believers, where we have the opportunity to confess our sins one to another and to pray for one another. It's, and I've said this before, it's, it's the spirit-filled life it's part of what the spirit-filled life is, Ephesians 5.21, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we have to ask ourselves this question because this is the ongoing reality of a person's faith who is genuine. Are you going to your spouse regularly to ask them, will you forgive me for this? And are you reconciling? That doesn't exist. There, there, there's major reasons to be concerned. 
We go to our fellow man, our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, even in our own family. And, and that's what it means to, to walk in fidelity to the gospel, to, to, to confess our sins. Parents, even with our children, we have that opportunity. And this is a strong spiritual reminder for us as we see the healing power of Jesus in this passage, which also helps us see a physical picture of the spiritual reality that takes place when our faith in Christ is genuine. Well, there's still a few major lessons that we must see in the heart of this passage. Look at verse 30. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And Jesus is asking this question for uh, the woman's benefit, for Jairus' benefit, and, and for the others as well. It isn't to call into question his omniscience, all right? Jesus already knows who touched him. Verse 32 even indicates that he already knows it's a woman, right? If he wanted to, he could have walked straight up to her and, and said, why did you touch me? But there's purpose behind every single thing that he does. He wants her to bring her confession to him. And a reminder for us as well. He, he wants us to bring our, our confession to him. We're going to have an opportunity to do that second hour corporately. And there's something freeing, liberating about it. His confused disciples have no idea how intimately acquainted Jesus is with every detail. So they ask him in verse 31 in this Larry Curly and Moe type fashion, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? I mean, that's, that's they, they don't know. You know, I've often wondered as the, the writers, as they were led under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record what they record, how they were even learning Right? Like, oh, this is what he was trying to teach us. You know, hello, this is it. Jesus wanted the woman to know that he knew that she had touched him. Jesus wanted Jairus to know. He wanted his disciples to know who had touched him so that an important theological truth could be conveyed. And the suspense proves to be too much. So in verse 33, it says, But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This woman was ceremonially unclean. And as a result, her deliberate reaching out and touching Jesus did what? It made him ceremonially unclean. By Jewish standards, by according to the law, according to the law of Leviticus, by the Torah, it made him unclean. And her direct admission of touching Jesus meant that Jesus was indeed unclean. And had this happened to anyone else besides Jesus, this would have warranted a severe rebuke. And it helps us also to understand why there was so much trembling and fear as Jesus is summoning, summoning her and saying, who, who touched my garments? She is shaking in fear. And, and, the, and the fact that there's even this thought process of, of, of divinity, right? Or at least, you know, the, the reality of the Holy One of God and, and what's transpiring, right, is as small as it is at this time. She knows what she did. It's alarming. And certainly if Jairus or any other Jews would have been touched by this woman, it would not have been well received. So there's this profound message of mercy and compassion flowing out of the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ that we can't miss. It's right there. And so Jesus turns to her and says, woman, how dare you touch me? No. You know what Leviticus 15 says? Let me get a scroll. I'll show you. 
No. In a heart of compassion, a heart filled with mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ responds in grace. And this, my friends, I'm telling you, is another statement against the religious establishment of Israel that turned away such people who were in need. And Jairus, a synagogue official, and the disciples are all seeing this take place right before their eyes. And again, if I can cross-reference the Lord's rebuke back in Mark 2.17, it's so interesting, right? I haven't come to call the healthy, but I've come to call the sick, right? I've read that verse, but in Matthew's account of the same passage that takes place right before this account, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus includes another staggering statement to the Pharisees when he says this in Matthew 9, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He was helping them see through their, their, their self-righteousness and their pride and their ministry efforts that they lacked, they totally lacked compassion and there are so many things taking place here that God will have us see. And we won't have time to, to cover these in depth, but we're going to have another week next Sunday to, to look at these. Jesus is helping Jairus and his disciples see the importance of compassion when ministering as servants of God. And we're invited to see it as well. And God's word instructs you and I in Colossians 3.12 to clothe ourselves with compassion because it helps us not to overlook the needs of others and the opportunities that we have to put the gospel on display. And this reality was being lived out before Jairus and the disciples through our Lord's ministry in an unprecedented fashion. What Jew would possibly allow a person to touch them? Like this. How about the king of the Jews? Second, Jesus is helping this woman see that it was okay for her to approach him in faith. Her affliction and impurity need not be an impediment for her or anyone to come to him. Not only did this healing point to the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, who in Matthew 8, 17 says, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases, but it points forward to the healing power of the gospel to cure and heal every spiritual infection caused by sin. Third, Jesus is helping Jairus and his disciples see the introduction that the gospel would eventually abolish the practice of the ceremonial laws. Jesus says in his own words, you, you guys know this well, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it, right? He's fulfilling it. Ceremonial laws and rituals for pur purification restricted Jews from touching lepers, corpses, those who suffered from certain infections or impurities. And as we've seen today, this woman is someone who fell into this camp, who wouldn't have access to the synagogue. But those restrictions will no longer exist in the New Testament church. And fourthly, and perhaps most significantly, Jesus is helping this woman see the significance of having a personal relationship with him. James Edwards says, the persistence of Jesus in discovering who touched him rivals the woman's persistence in reaching Jesus. She wants a cure, a something, whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with someone. He is not content to only dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter the person. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. Nothing reflects the reality of this sentiment more deeply than Christ's final words to her in verse 34 when he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus, how beautiful is that? He responds by, who's listening, Jairus? He responds by calling her daughter, and interestingly, the Greek word for healed can mean either heal or save, depending on the context. And the spoken Hebrew and Aramaic term behind it, 
Yasha is actually a variant of the Hebrew name Jesus, Yeshua, which means God saves. God saves. How do you think this miracle would impact this woman and would grow her faith in moving forward? How would it grow Jairus' faith as he waited for his own daughter to be healed as he's just witnessed what's taken place? Well, to find out, you're going to have to come back last week because our time is officially up, and I thank you for giving me just a few extra minutes, and we'll have an opportunity to look at this amazing passage again together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are just so blessed as we consider the the magnitude of the gospel and the life and ministry of Jesus. And what a, a reminder, I hope, that has blessed our church family as it blessed my heart in the week of preparation that you're not done growing us and that we need to grow in faith. And yes, our faith is clearly defined as we've trusted completely in Christ, but it's not fully grown. And we need to increase our view of all that you are. We need to increase our understanding and our knowledge of your sovereignty and your power in all things in the circumstances of life. And then we need to apply those truths. Help us not walk away from the service today unchanged. Help us not lose sight of, of those, those realities that reflect a growing faith. We pray, Father, that you would continue just to enlighten our hearts to understand the truths and We want to conclude our service by thanking you, by praising you for the reality that is ours in the gospel, the cleansing effect and the power of Christ that has redeemed us and assigned new value and purpose to our lives. We give you all the credit and all the glory. We ask now as a church family that you continue just to bless us and grow us in your faithfulness. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen.